This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Each day, workers in the healthcare field debate the most reliable course of action for treating a particular ailment. As part of U.S. healthcare reform, new emphasis is being placed on comparative effectiveness research, or CER, which pits remedies against one another to determine which is best. A new paper by Wharton professor Scott Harrington warns that the government should avoid developing a monopoly on CER and offers suggestions for sparking interest from private sector researchers. Comparative effectiveness research refers to any type of research that attempts to evaluate the effects of different types of treatments on people's health care. So it really focuses on does, say, treatment A work better or worse than, say, treatment B. It's closely related to the concept of cost-effectiveness analysis, except in cost-effectiveness analysis, we also consider how much it costs for treatment A versus treatment B, and you can then weigh any incremental benefit in health from one treatment versus another versus the additional costs that may be involved in one treatment versus another. The role of comparative effectiveness research has become more important in recent years as there's been greater and greater concern about the high cost of healthcare and rapid growth in healthcare costs. In addition, we have obviously enormous concerns with the United States federal budget deficit. A good chunk of that deficit is due to healthcare spending. Part of the interest in comparative effectiveness research has been motivated by the possibility that getting more research on what type of medical care works conceivably could lead to some savings without reducing the quality of care. Some of it could be, to some extent, invisible for most people, at least in the short run. But the idea would be, if there's more information about different modes of treatments and how they work, then in principle, physicians will take that information into account to some extent when they prescribe treatments. It might also be the case that many consumers who are now more likely to go online and try to seek information about what types of healthcare may work for their types of conditions, they also may become exposed to more research results about preferred modes of treatment. So to some extent, patients may know a little bit more about what to expect and what might work. Physicians, if there is an increase in the amount of evidence available, many of them will take that into account to some extent in their prescribing decisions. So in principle, patients and physicians would have a better idea of what works better, and that might guide treatment. Now, one of the things I focus on in my analysis is the extent to whether more information of that type will actually affect behavior. To some extent, if you divorce comparative effectiveness results, just information about whether treatment A works versus treatment B, and you don't consider the relative costs of treatment A versus treatment B, you may have less incentive for both consumers and patients, or consumers and physicians, to take into account the results of any comparative effectiveness analysis. The impact of comparative effectiveness research on a person's choice will depend to a great extent about whether or not the results of the research affect insurance coverage decisions and effective physician behavior. In many cases, it should only be beneficial, at least in terms of having the information, because what people will know is, does, is there evidence that treatment A does work better than, say, treatment B? There is an issue about whether or not the results could generalize to entire populations. 
And there may be cases where the results will focus on the benefits of a treatment to an average person, but it might not be that applicable to the treatment for, say, a special category of person, a person with other health conditions that may influence the course of treatment. An argument for public funding is that of comparative effectiveness research is that there might be too little private sector investment because the creation of information and research results may become readily available to people without paying the full cost of the information. That creates some notion that maybe the public should invest to provide the information because private investors may not have enough incentive to make those investments. Now, I explain in the paper why that argument can probably pretty quickly be carried too far, that if there is a demand for more information about the types of treatment that works by physicians and by patients, I think we can be pretty confident that private investors will undertake expenditures and research programs to meet that increased demand for information. So although there certainly is some role for government expenditures to fund com comparative effectiveness research, we want to be careful that by expanding public investment, we don't crowd out private investment that would be forthcoming if there is the demand for the information. And I explain in this policy-oriented paper the kind of standard drawbacks to increase public investment. It can be a good thing, but you face some formidable problems with public investment. And a very important one is the decision has to be made where to spend the money. What types of priorities should we establish in order to decide what types of treatments should be studied by research that's funded by the government? And that prioritization and allocation of research funding generally faces a problem of how do you balance the diverse needs of many constituencies and there can be political pressures and pressures brought to bear that might give rise to a scenario where the funding is channeled to areas where there might not be the most value added, there might not be the most benefits in terms of identifying treatments that help people and maybe save money. It may instead reflect the politics of the underlying decision process. More generally, it's if you have an environment where there's a demand for information about what works, the private markets are able, when assessing that demand for information, to really have a diverse source of funding where if people think the demand is there and they can get some sort of return on that investment, you will see the, the research will be targeted to a great diversity of treatments in a very decentralized way that doesn't require the government to basically say, okay, here's a proposal from this group. Do we think that's good or not when you have competing interests who are arguing that you should spend the money on something else besides that. When the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, the Health Care Reform Act, basically includes about a billion dollars of funding for comparative effectiveness research over the next decade. Part of that funding was started with the Stimulus Act that was enacted in 2009. The law required the Institute of Medicine to develop priorities for government spending on comparative effectiveness research. And after a very detailed survey process and input from numerous groups, they came up with 100 priorities. They put them in the four buckets from the highest priority for among the 100 to the bottom priority from the 100. And if you look through those priorities, you can get the feeling that there, in many cases, are lots of special interests, if you will, special needs that have a big, a big impact on that prioritization. 
So I talk about some of this in the paper. For example, one of the bottom priorities among this list of 100 involved expensive CT scanning versus cheaper, more conventional scanning. That was rated in the bottom priority category. Another bottom priority category was different modes of uh, surgical treatment for various types of back problems. Now many people, at least at least the public, would think that issues where we really might be able to save money and do better by allocating spending appropriately would be in those types of areas, but yet they were in the bottom 25 out of this top 100. The, uh, the top 25 of that list of 100 priorities for a comparative effectiveness research included things such as different treatments to prevent dental decay in children. It included things such as different innovative and innovative treatments for preventing unwanted pregnancies. Now, my, my take here is not to say I would dispute specifically any of those rankings, but it does sort of reflect the multitude of needs that various interest groups will bring forward for government funding and the very difficult problem a funding agency has when deciding, okay, where do we decide when we spend these dollars? If there's demand for information and we can encourage the private sector to respond, you can imagine an environment where the money will go to where it potentially can add the most value, which is where it could provide the most benefit in terms of advising patients and providers how of, of uh, what course of care would be best for a particular patient. By and large, if, if you can overcome some issues that might discourage private sector comparative effectiveness funding in some cases, the private money will tend to go where there's the most demand for the information. Now one of the things I emphasize to at great length in the paper is that all this is taking place in the context of our current insurance payment and reimbursement system. And it's well known that traditionally that system has sort of insulated many patients from the cost of treatment, which is at times a very good thing, and to some extent it's insulated physicians from the cost of treatment. If something is largely insured, the issue of how much it costs tends to not matter as much in the treatment decisions. I talk about how if we let certain developments that have already started continue, and if we don't roll back those developments, we will expect that as insurance becomes more expensive, as more people get coverage under policies with high deductibles, they're going to have, patients and physicians will have more interest in not only whether a treatment works, but how much it costs. And we're likely to have a lot more demand for information about how much treatment A might work versus treatment B in order to weigh the treatments in relationship to how much money it costs. In an environment where everybody's sort of insulated from those costs, then research that might provide evidence that treatment A is a little better than treatment B really won't be valued or demanded as much. The short story of that is, as people become more and more concerned with the cost of care as well as, well as its impact on their health, we will see a natural expansion, a great expansion of private sector investment in providing the types of information that will help guide consumers that care about the cost as well as the benefits as well as their doctors. If we move instead down a road where we channel more and more money into public resources, you will tend to crowd out that uh, private sector investment. And just uh, to finish that particular thought, one of the things that concerns people about government funding of comparative effectiveness research is that, and this has been highly controversial, the issue is will that funding evolve 
to where the results of that research will actually be used by the government in, say, the Medicare program or conceivably state governments in Medicaid to restrict payments for certain types of procedures. That ultimately could be a sensible thing for Medicare and for Medicaid to do under some cases, but there is a great fear that if you move down the path of spending more and more public money to determine what works, the next step will be to spend the public money to ask the question, is this type of treatment worth the cost to the government and to the taxpayer? And people are naturally very hesitant to go down that path, which tends to put you on the path towards more and more government control on health care. The other path is to rely for people who are relatively well-educated and who can bear some financial responsibilities to get them more involved in making decisions about their care and caring about the cost as well as the benefits of medical treatment. And under those conditions, we'll see an enormous expansion of private sector investment to help guide decisions. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.